Welcome to the First Mass Podcast. Pastor Paul is continuing his sermon series on Lessons from Abraham, this time from Genesis chapter 17, with the title, Two Rituals and a Meal. Let's listen in as he speaks from the Word of God. Do you remember how you learned to tie your shoes? Do you have any memory of, of learning to tie your shoes? I have a really... I have a really distinct memory of learning to tie my shoes. I was on the floorboards of my mom's car. I was in the front seat on the floorboards of my mom's car. This is a different day and age. We were, tra- we were traveling somewhere. I want to say we were driving back from Spokane, but I, but I was very small. I just, but I remember what I remember for sure is I was on the floorboards of my mom's car and my sister, I think it was my sister Roberta, but it may have been my sister Beth. One of the two was, was just very methodically, intentionally showing me how to tie my shoes and, you know, repeating the process. And by the time that drive was over, I was a shoe tire. I knew how to do it from then on. And, you know, there's, there's something about the power of a memory like that that is... Uh, is kind of cool. It, it, I don't think about that story every time that I tie my shoes, now do I? I? I tied my shoes this morning not thinking at all about that story. But the power of that moment was on display this morning when, look, it's tied. And it stayed together, both of them. Haven't, haven't had to retie all morning. Thank you, thank you. They're, uh, they're still there. So the power of that moment, I remember it, and if I want to, any time that I tie my shoes, I can go back to, to sitting on the floorboards of my mom's car, driving down the highway, so unsafe, my goodness, and, and learning to tie my shoes. But, if, uh, but I don't have to, but I do. But, I, I, but I, I enjoy the benefits of it every time. We're approaching today the wisdom that comes from the Word of God. Uh, God, Scripture is so full of, of wisdom for us, this, this incredible repository of God instructing us on how to live day in and day out as, as people who want to be in relationship with Him. And we're looking today at some of the very oldest stories in, in the life of, of people trying to relate to the Lord. We're looking at the life of Abraham, and I'm in, this morning I'm in Genesis chapter 17, if you'd like to open your own Bible and follow along. Through Abraham, God began this whole experiment of, of people in relationship with him. And we today, we live as beneficiaries and, and the heirs of Abraham's relationship with God. God started the project of blessing the whole world through Abraham's family, and we live in that, in that project. Today, we're going to look at two specific practices that Abraham practiced, was instructed to practice, and just kind of did on his own, one of them. And, and we're, we're looking at how these two practices helped Abraham live in relationship with God. Uh, they're both a little weird, though. I'll be honest with you. They're not something that people just, like, know about or, or do just commonly. And one of them is kind of a little uncomfortable to talk about in mixed company. And it's, uh, 
it's children's, it's family Sunday. We're all here today. So for the conversations uh, that parents are going to have after church today with attentive young ones, get ready. Um, the practices I'm looking at, though, they, I, they go beyond Abraham's sort of regular experience of God. Abraham, it seems like every time we're turning to the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, we're finding a new experience, a new repetition of Abraham hearing from God in this incredible, unique way, uh, whether it's through a dream or God just shows up and there is God. Or last week we looked at (laughs) the story of the three men who showed up, and then a little while later it's God and two men, and then a little while later the two men have turned into angels. Abraham had this incredible relationship with God where God just showed up. God just like physically, without any doubt, spoke to Abraham. We don't, not many of us, not many of us, I should say, have that, that kind of experience. And I, I was thinking about that as I reflected on this idea that, man, so jealous of Abraham. God just shows up, you know, God is physically in pr- front of him. And Abraham understands that that physical, it looks like a man, is God speaking to him. Abraham had the clarity to, to understand that. And, and I, you know, I've been thinking about like, man, that's, that would be really cool. And then I got to thinking about like the reality that uh, I have like 1,400 pages of God speaking to humanity available to me 24-7. And so Abraham in his like 10 experiences of God showing up over the course of 180 years of life, he probably would say, man, I wish I had a 1,400 pages of writing (laughs) that I could just go to any time, and I didn't have to wait until God just showed up. Uh, So maybe I need to get over myself a little bit about uh, being jealous about Abraham. But, you know, in, in in spite of Abraham's experience of God in these very tangible, real ways, uh, that we can't really quantify or explain, many of us do have experiences of God speaking to us without a doubt, of knowing beyond a shadow of doubt. I like, I believe beyond a shadow of doubt, I am confident that God called me to be a pastor. It, it happened. And, you know, it wasn't, God didn't show up and have a meal with me and say, all right, Paul, the thing is, you got to be a pastor now. That, that didn't happen. God didn't, didn't appear to me in a dream and say, you know, thundering out of the clouds. I don't have a thundering voice, so I can't, I can't imitate it, you know, but God didn't thunder out of the clouds that you, you are called to be a pastor. I, I don't, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know that for me to, to obey God with my vocation is to, to do this. And so thank you for letting me be obedient uh, by by letting me be your pastor. I appreciate that. So the we we wish that we knew uh, we wish we knew a way to force God to speak to us at times, right? Like there are times in our lives where we really want clarity. We really want God to speak into a situation. And we we just like we really wish <laughs> we really wish God would just out of the clouds, you know, handwriting on the wall tell us God just doesn't doesn't appear to be interested in communicating with us that way. Uh, and, and so the, the practices that we're looking at today 
are not practices that led to Abraham experiencing presence in, in a unique way. The practices that, that we see Abraham practicing here in Genesis are just sort of like obedience to God, day in and day out obedience to God. And, and this foundational experience of, of Abraham so early in the story of God's interaction with humanity, it, it sort of lays a foundation for us to understand that God has expectations of us regardless of whether we're hearing audibly for, from God or not. God expects us to live in relationship faithfully with God, whether, whether he is pointing, that's the direction you go, or whether God is frustratingly silent. God, God invites us, and I believe expects us, to, to practice certain things to put us in, in the way of hearing his voice. It's not a formula, but maybe these, these practices will kind of help us as we understand what it is to be, to be people who live with God's presence working in us and God directing us. So the first practice I'm looking at today, it's circumcision. And the, the instruction about circumcision comes in Genesis chapter, chapter 17. Genesis 17, lo and behold, it's another passage in which God is repeating a promise to Abraham. God shows up. He says, I am the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai. Uh, and, and in Genesis 17 is where Abram, who was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans from his father's home, he gets a new name and he is Abraham. He was an exalted father, but that name couldn't contain all of the blessings that God wanted to give him. And so God said, you are Abraham, you are a father of a multitude. And, and so Abraham gets a new name. And in the midst of that, as, as God is renaming Abraham, his wife, Sarai, gets a new name. Sarai uh, probably means princess, and then Sarah means the mother of kings. And so she, she goes from, you know, this, the, the princess to, to the mother of kings as God gives Abram and Sarai new identity from, from an exalted father to a father of a multitude, from, from a princess to the mother of kings, and, and God renaming them. In, in between the stories of God renaming Abram and Sarai, we get instructions about circumcision. Kind of an interesting place. As God is giving a new identity to Abram, he gives these instructions. They're found in Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14. This is what it says. Then God said to Abraham, He's already Abraham. No question. God said to Abraham, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. This is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised. You must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between me and you. From generation to generation, every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This applies not only to members of your family, but also to the servants born in your household and the foreign-born servants whom you have purchased. All must be circumcised. Your bodies must, will bear the mark of my everlasting covenant. Any male who fails to be circumcised 
will be cut off from the covenant family for breaking the covenant. And I just want to highlight here as the Lord gives this command, this is a very serious command. Very, very serious command. There's lots of repetition in the giving of the command, which is, is the sort of Hebrew writing way of adding emphasis. Repetition equals emphasis in the Old Testament. And, and the, the seriousness of the command comes out in, in its inclusivity. Like, there, there, is, there is no male in the family or in the house that is able to escape this. The words all and every are repeated over and over in the giving of the command. And, and then the description of the servants who are supposed to be, command, to be circumcised. It's if they were born in the house, if they've been purchased, everybody, all the, all the men around are supposed to experience this, go through this. But it's also, also serious in terms of the responsibility given to Abraham. He, he, he is the only one hearing this, presumably. We don't, there's not like a scene of a lot of people around at this moment. This is commanding to Abraham. Your responsibility is to make sure every male in your household, and it's not just every male in your household, it is generation to generation. This is serious stuff. Like, have you ever thought about how hard it would be to tell your kids, like, okay, this is not just an instruction for you, this is an instruction for your kids and their kids and their kids and their kids, right? Like, getting your kids to pick up their shoes is hard enough, right? How are you going to get kids to teach their kids to teach their kids? And, and so this responsibility on, on Abraham's shoulders, this is like a heavy weight. He, he is being instructed to start this thing that is going to mark your family forever, forever. And, and so this is like a pretty serious responsibility that, that Abraham is given. And then it's, it's serious with regard to the, the consequences of failing to follow through, right? In verse 14, Abraham is told, any male, again, inclusive, any male who doesn't is cut off from the family. Any male who's cut, who doesn't is cut off. Um, now, I, I was... Uh, I was interested as I, as I read this week to learn that circumcision was, was something that was practiced around Abraham. He, he wasn't the only person in, in the ancient world who, who practiced circumcision. There was some uh, circumcision practiced in Egypt. There was some in Canaan around where, where Abraham lived and settled. Um, and so it was practiced by, by different groups. But as history moves on, like circumcision become, it goes in and out of favor with different cultures, and it becomes cultural for some and, and not for others. And God's people pretty much always practiced it. Uh, there's, there's a moment in, during the Exodus when it doesn't happen, and it's a sign of how far the people have gone away from, from God. But God's people pretty much always practiced it as a means of welcoming baby boys into the family. And, and uh, by the time that history has gotten to Jesus, as, as we go through the Old Testament and we get to Jesus, uh, the Jews are really identified and, and circumcision becomes like sort of the, 
one of the ways that the Jews are really set apart and unique from the culture around us, or around them. The, the, they appear to be one of the only, if not the only, community that had fallen under the umbrella of the Roman Empire that practiced circumcision. And so it was like the, or one of the, identifying marks of, of the Jews when, when Jesus was born. Uh, well, it's, it's an interesting commandment that's given, but the cool thing about this chapter in Genesis is that we see the application of it immediately. And, and Abraham doesn't, he doesn't wait until it's a convenient time to obey this command. He doesn't like send off letters to some friends to let them know, hey, I, I'm changing my name, by the way. God's given me a new name. Uh, call me Abraham now. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything. He, he just goes to, to do what God told him to do, which is pretty, pretty remarkable. And so it's, we read about it just down the page. Sarah gets, gets named Sarah. And then in verse 23, we pick up again the idea of circumcision. And so this is Genesis 17, verse 23. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael, and every male born in his household, including those born there and those, sorry, every male in his household, including those born there and those he had bought. Then he circumcised them, cutting off their foreskins, just as God had told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and Ishmael, his son, was 13. Both Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised on that same day, along with all the other men and boys of the household, whether they were born there or bought as servants, all were circumcised with him. The author of Genesis is really trying to paint a good picture of Abraham as an obedient listener of God in this passage. Again, the repetition of all the, all the men were circumcised that very day, it says. And just like the Lord commanded, uh, we, we read in, in verse 23, uh, just as the Lord had, had commanded um, Abraham and, and so the, the author wants us to be aware of, of just sort of the instantaneous response to, to God's command. Abraham is a good example for us in, in this area, that he hears and he responds. And Abraham makes sure that, that the community is created and set, uh, and, and circumcision becomes a, a sign of belonging to this community from now on. And so through history... God's people who, who trace their lineage back to, to Abraham, and as we read about God's plan of salvation unfolding through the Old Testament, circumcision continues to be, or, or kind of morphs, I guess. It, it continues to be an identifying mark of the family, uh, but circumcision begins to be conflated a little bit with, with piety, with, with somebody's willingness to, to listen to God, somebody's readiness to obey God. And, and uh, there's, there's a connection in, in the Old Testament between right living and circumcision. 
uh, when, when, during the Exodus, when the people stop it, they, they don't practice it, it's because they're so sinful. It's because they've rebelled against God. And then by the time we get to the New Testament, uh, circumcision becomes like, a, uh, it almost replaces obedience to God. If you are circumcised, then obviously you are good in God's sight, uh, according to the logic of the people around Jesus. And so, uh, let's, uh, what do we do with <laughs> this passage and this kind of strange practice? Uh, what's our, our modern, modern application of Genesis 17? The interesting thing about circumcision is that in, in the New Testament, the, the New Testament church explicitly says circumcision is optional. Uh, you, you no longer need to be circumcised in order to, to be a good follower of the Lord. The New, the New Testament church agreed it was too much to ask of people outside of the family uh, to, to participate in, to ask them to, to undergo circumcision. And, and this is in large part due to the fact that circumcision had become confused with obedience to God. People thought if they were circumcised, they were obedient. And, and Jesus and his followers understood that those outward things, like circumcision and diet, those things weren't as important as the condition of our heart. And that had been repeated in the Old Testament. Even in the Old Testament, the, the prophets speak to God's people and say, you're so proud of your circumcision, but what you need is, is your heart to be circumcised. You, you need all of the stuff that keeps you from obeying God and loving other people to be cut away from your heart. And, and so the New Testament church said, let's not require something that people will put their faith in instead of Jesus. Let's not require this, this outward act that the people are so confused by and think that it, it bonds them to God in a way that only obedience bonds them to God. And so for, for Christians, circumcision, like, it's kind of not a thing. <laughs> it's, it's not really a thing for us. But, but the implementation of, of circumcision, and again, we're in Genesis in these foundational chapters of God relating to people. The implementation, the command of circumcision it points to a reality of the human heart. It points to, to a truth about people. So the truth about people that we, we see in this is, is that as humans, we, we kind of have a desire to go through an initiation. We, we want to graduate, or we want to be welcomed in through, through a ceremony, or, or we like a symbol, we like a ring to remind us of, of an important commitment. We like, we like having had, you know, having had an experience that, that we can point to. Uh, it reminds us that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And so for God's people, circumcision was that, you know, it, it was the baby boys on the eighth day, but it was that thing they could point to. My parents thought it was so important for me that on the eighth day of my life, they, they took me to, to the person that circumcised me. For, for Christians, uh, it's not circumcision. 
We have a similar rite, though. We do have a similar, similar practice in, in the Christian church, which is baptism. You know, baptism is not a perfect replacement for, for circumcision. Uh, it's, it's just not, it doesn't, it doesn't do everything that circumcision did. But baptism actually is kind of, I, I think I prefer it, <laughs> uh, as, as an initiation rite. Into, into a faith. Let me tell you a few reasons why I think baptism is, is maybe a better, better way to think about being initiated. Like, baptism is inclusive, right? I have, I have just sort of danced around the idea that this is only boys that experience circumcision. Everybody in the church is, is invited. Jesus told his followers, baptize everyone who believes. Baptize them all. And, and so we, we welcome, and then the symbolism of baptism is so, is so much better, right? Like the, the symbolism, I'm avoiding saying some things that might get me in trouble. The symbolism of baptism, uh, when I baptize people in the river, you know, I'll dunk them, or up here too, I'll dunk them. And, uh, you know, I grab them by the arm and I put my hand behind their back. And then last, last year when we were advertising that baptisms were coming up, it looked like I was like really forcing someone down, you know? Uh, so so you, you lean back into the, to the waters of baptism and the book of Romans tells us that when we, when we are baptized, we identify with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. The symbolism is, is far superior. <laughs> the, the cleansing of being, being brought into water. You know, most of us around here shower most days. Uh, it, through history, baptism has been, you know, one of the times that people get very wet. Uh, and <laughs> it's, uh, it's that, that sort of cleansing that, that happens we mostly baptize people who who are uh, come to faith and and are old enough to make the decision to come to faith. Uh, in the Church of the Nazarene, we don't divide about over how baptism is done and who receives baptism. We believe that grace is available for baptism uh, in baptism, and so we're not going to withhold it from anyone, including if a family says they want to have their infant baptized. Uh, and, and so in the Church of the Nazarene, there's, there's no restriction against infant baptism. Our practice here locally is, is typically to baptize those who have come to faith already as, as people who are able to make the decision. And, and so I, I'm biased because I was baptized as a teenager after I made the decision, and, and I like the idea of, of uh, baptism of believers I, I like it because it's tactile. I, I, I like the, the experience of, of getting so wet in clothes that you're not usually so wet in. And the, the sensation of, of water dripping and, and, you know, that sort of strange, strange experience. I'm, I'm really grateful for the memory of my baptism right there. It happened right there. Um... Uh, 
I, I have these, these strong memories of the, the night of my baptism. It was a cold, cold night, but the church was super full. Lots of people had come for, for baptiz- a special baptismal service. And so ch- church was super full, and that cold night, there, there was a mix of cold air and then heat from all the bodies in here. I remember very clearly wet, wet blue jeans, a wet t-shirt, walking up those stairs, Steve Thomas passing me a towel. Uh, I, I remember very clearly the, the baptistry leaking so, like a sieve in those days. Thank you, Terry, it doesn't leak anymore. Uh, it was like a shower down there, and I changed in, in the bathroom in the, in the basement. Uh, I, remember, I remember so clearly... Uh, just the the small things of the evening, uh, riding riding in my mom's blue Toyota Camry, to and from church. It just uh, it, those those memories stick with me. It, I chose as a teenager to to be baptized. I was making a public declaration of my faith, but I kind of thought that it was something that was just going to be us, you know, like it's just my my church people and. And then Josh Stellman showed up, and he was a classmate from junior high. And uh, Josh and I played junior golf together. And Josh was Catholic uh, and, and was certainly baptized, uh, but you know his faith and mine didn't necessarily shape our relationship as, as junior high boys. And so suddenly my baptism became a real declaration public declaration, somebody that would see me the next day at Jennifer Junior High School was there and knew what I had done on Sunday night. Uh, And, you know, Abraham and Ishmael, they remembered the day of their circumcision. Uh, But but that's not a privilege that is afforded to, to many who are circumcised. I like, to, I like to baptize people who, who will remember the experience. Uh, I, I'm biased, again, because I have those memories. I, I'm biased. Um, in the church, though, in the church, we call people to, at times, remember your baptism. We, we don't do that real well in the Church of the Nazarene. But in, in the church, occasionally, there are moments when we will say, remember your baptism. Uh, for, for those of us who, who remember the experience, it does draw back to mind that night and the water leaking into the basement from the baptistry. But really, what we say when we say, remember your baptism, is remember, regardless of whether you remember the event or not, Maybe your parents brought you and presented you as an infant. Remember that you have been initiated into the family of God. Remember that you have been invited to die with Christ and come to life with Christ. Remember that that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins and you have accepted that good gift from his hand. Remember that you are a part of this community. You have been initiated into the family. You have passed through this experience. And, and you are one of us. And, the, and us doesn't mean Lewiston First Church of the Nazarene. Us means everyone who believes in Jesus. 
And so we, when we say remember your baptism, we, we, we say all those things, but it's like when you tie your shoe. You, you have the memory of learning how, but you don't remember everything all at once. Uh, I didn't learn how to tie a double knot that day. <laughs> you, you learn some more things as you go along. I didn't know all of all of what it meant to be a part of the family of God when I was 14 and I said, I want to be baptized. I still don't know. I'm still learning. When I'm, when I'm encouraged to remember my baptism, I'm still being encouraged to learn more and remember what it means to be a part of this family. Well, the church is commanded to baptize anybody who believes. Um, and so what better time than now for me to tell you uh, we're, we're coming up on um, a picnic in the park at the end of this month, and I will be baptizing anybody who, who has put your faith in Jesus but has not yet been baptized uh, in the Snake River. So that'll be the Sunday evening, the 27th of August. If, if you have believed and you've not yet been baptized, it's the church that's commanded to, to baptize it's not new believers that are told, uh, like, baptize yourself or get yourself baptized. The church is supposed to. And so, so we invite you to, to come and be part, get initiated, be, be a part of this. And so if, if anybody has put your faith in the Lord and, and not been baptized, let me know after church or let any of us on staff or small group leader or Sunday school teacher, let us know. And, and we'll make sure that we have a towel for you on the 27th, because you'll get wet. Well, I promised there were two practices. I promised there were two practices from Abraham's life. The second is a little quicker. It's just kind of in passing, and uh, you could almost miss it, but I won't let you miss it, and you haven't missed it because I've already mentioned it. If you've been listening to these sermons in the life of Abraham, in the first couple of chapters in, in Abraham's life, in Genesis 12 and 13, there is a lot of talk about Abraham building altars. It, it said that he, he traveled in stages, and so every few days he would stop to let sore feet and sore muscles recover. And, and as he stops in stages four times over those, those two chapters, it, there's mention of an altar, Either one that he's coming back to that he had built before, he builds one. Uh, and and uh, so he, he had this regular practice of stopping and of worshiping and, and of setting aside place and time to, to be in God's practice. Well, it's mentioned a lot in chapters 13 and, or 12 and 13, and then uh, there goes a long period of time where Abraham, worship doesn't come up all that much in Abraham's story. We just kind of get the events and, and just the facts. And, and then it comes back in toward the end of his story when, when Abraham goes to the top of a mountain and arranges stones into an altar to, to lay down his son Isaac and offer Isaac as a sacrifice according to God's command. And, and uh, we'll be talking about that story in a few weeks uh, before we wrap up with the life of Abraham. 
It's interesting to me that in the book of Genesis, nowhere in the Bible is there any mention of the mechanics of building an altar. But even, even Adam and Eve's sons, they build altars. And no, it's like it's, it's, it's something you're born, you should be born knowing how to do, apparently. It's like instinctual. It's, it's like blinking. I don't know. Like you, everybody should know how to do it, according to the Bible, uh, it seems like. And, and um, I, I highlight this sort of regular practice of Abraham and his knowing how to, knowing the mechanics of it, knowing what to do, uh, because again, in these, these foundational chapters of us understanding what God expects in relationship with him, Abraham reflects this, this desire to enter God's presence and to worship God. This is before there is any written law. This is before there is a commandment to keep the Sabbath and make it a holy day. This Abraham, and then Abraham is just like a pretty imperfect person. You hear preachers occasionally say of like an Old Testament character, this is the only person in scripture that nothing negative is recorded of. I, I don't know, like, uh, Abraham is not that guy. Abraham, he's, he's got his flaws. He's got his warts. And, and so, still in his imperfections, he is thirsty to worship God. I, I like that about Abraham. I like that about Abraham, that it's, it's not, his worship of God, it's not in response to a command, is it? He, it's before the Ten Commandments were given. He, he just had it in his heart to, to worship. May, may we have in our heart, may we be thirsty to worship God. And so we have these regular practices as, as believers. We, we have the commandment that tells us every seventh day you should make it holy. Um, and so traveling in stages as we do, we stop once a week, we gather, we sing songs together, we, we listen to God speak through, through the word. We have daily routines as individuals of prayer and devotional reading, meditation, getting ourselves in, into God's presence, weekly rhythms in small groups of gathering in homes to study scripture or pray for one another. And we have bigger rhythms, right? We have bigger rhythms in life. Camp, once a summer, once a year, go to camp for a week. It's a great way. Or a couple of times a, a summer, if you go to family camp and teen camp and kids camp and and, and retreats, you know, women's retreats coming up and men's retreat in October. We, we have these, these rhythms in our lives, fasting during the season of Lent. Um, in, in our church, we, we have two specific acts, though, that, that we call sacraments. Baptism is a sacrament. You can hear in the word sacrament, sacred. It's this sacred, sacred thing that Jesus commanded his disciples. He commanded his disciples to, to baptize anybody who believes. Um, and, and then uh, we, we believe that, that God's presence is uniquely present. Uh, we, we can experience God's presence uniquely when, 
when we do them in response to Jesus's call. The, the, other, the other sacrament that we have in, in our church is it's the meal of communion. And, and we, we believe that God's presence is, is uniquely here with us as we, we take communion. Again, it's like tying our shoes. We don't, we don't remember everything that's gone on for us to experience communion, this meal, uh, every time we take it. But we learn, we learn a little bit more. We learn a little bit more every time. Baptism is a sort of one-time experience that we, we recall. It sets us apart. It identifies us as a part of the family. Communion is this time when, when we come, we do it once a month, month after month. We come back and receive this grace. We remember what Jesus has done for us. We, we put ourselves in the position and, and we, we find ourselves satisfied by God's grace and presence through this meal. The Manual of the Church of the Nazarene tells us that communion is uh, instituted by our Savior. It is a sacrament which proclaims his life, his suffering, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection, and the hope we have in his coming again. The, the meal of communion is a means of grace, which Christ is present by the Spirit. It is to be received in reverent appreciation and gratitude for the work of Christ. So let all of those who have with true repentance forsaken their sins and believed in Jesus for salvation draw near. You are invited to participate in the life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus. Come to the table and be renewed. Thank you for joining us on the First Mass Podcast. We look forward to seeing you in person at 1700 8th Street in Lewiston. Come join us.